Jam. Games changes and fears. When will they go from here? When will they stop? Welcome to Man Marking. That had nothing to do with this show today, but it was a Macy Gray track. Um, I'm joined by Danny Reed and Anthony Olsen. Fellas, how are we? What on earth was that? Um, it was Macy Gray. It was just in my head. Oh, right. Do you not remember the song? I try. Um, no. Um, didn't she, did she sing Chasing Waterfalls? No, that's, that's TLC. TLC. Oh. Jesus. Is this? Yeah. Don't go chasing water. Don't you remember me? I try to say goodbye and, and I choke. I try to walk away <laughs> and I stumble. But, but try to burn games, the heart. It's clear. And fears. When will they go from here? When will they stop? The you pandemic kind of feels like that at the moment. So, um, it's deep. Deep today, gentlemen. Are we still Are we, are we, we on still Radio recording? 4? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are we? How are you? I'll start with you, Dan. How are you? You haven't introduced our fucking guests. Oh yeah. So our guests. Should we start? Should we start this again? Like, <laughs> can't we just edit it? I kind of like how that went. I liked it. My name's Danny Gray, and my name's Darren Eady. Welcome to Man Marking, and we're asking, "Where's the talking, lads?" You want to get into, out the game where you've into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could, and still do, for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Yeah, I regret regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking. Today we've got on the show founder of Warpaint, Danny Gray, and former footballer, Darren Eady. Uh, hi, yeah, so Danny Gray, I am the founder of a men's cosmetic brand called Warpaint for Men that launched back in November 2018, um, which has had quite a meteoric rise in the last couple of years, which is very unexpected, but welcomed. Uh, and yeah, recently did a partnership with Norwich uh, to sponsor them for the season. Yes, sir. I'm Darren Eady, former Premier League footballer um, for Chester. Um, had the pleasure of meeting Danny, uh, well, a few weeks back now, um, sort of uh, working for Norwich City uh, on the new partnership we have um, in terms of sponsorship. So it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be part of it. So joining the show today with Danny Reid and Anthony Olsen. How are we, chaps? Yes, very well. Superb. Um, TLC and... <laughs> TLC, we uh, yeah. um, sang... Chasing waterfalls, I think. <laughs> what else? Can we get another one from you? Scrubs? Yes. Yeah, I don't want no, scrubs. no, no scrubs. scrubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not big on... <laughs> Are you not? <laughs> Couldn't tell. Uh, <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks, Ryan. Good. Thanks for asking, good. mate. And how are you? I'm good, mate, yeah. Um, didn't realise I was on the Krypton factor here. Like. <laughs> it's more like never mind the buzzcocks, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, yeah. Can't even get the show right. Oh. <laughs> so we've got an opening question for you, then. Football fans, classically known to wear certain outfits, mm-hmm. you know, Stone Island and the like, CP company. But I want to know, have either of you ever made a fashion decision that was a little bit outside of the norm? I'm going to start with you, Dan, because I feel like you definitely have. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been quite experimental with the old um, fashion appearances throughout my life. Um, I've had many a uh, frosted tip low light. I've had. Uh, I went bright blonde once, but only for a very short period, which neither of you will have seen, because I dyed it back straight away the next day. I've well, seen. I've seen the picture. You see the picture. Yeah, yeah peroxide blonde. That was interesting. I had a. Uh, 
I had uh, uh, Mowork for a while. I also had, uh, what was the old Kevin Keegan that he had? Mullet. I had a mullet. Did Kevin Keegan have a mullet? You had a mullet? You, had a, a, you couldn't have had a mullet. Honestly, I had a mullet. Remember David Beckham went, had that You've mullet. you just followed his hair, hairstyles. Yeah, around, yeah, yeah. Would well, you remember David Beckham had that mullet when he was in LA Galaxy? Uh, the little flick at the back. Yeah, I went yeah. for that. Um, there's a picture that often gets put in our WhatsApp groups every now and again of me with black nail varnish on. Did that. I did that because of some guy on Big Brother. Quite liked it. It was in America at the time. Enjoyed that. Um, but one thing that I used to wear to the match quite regularly that um, I used to get jokes about was my uh, my little brown boots that I used to wear. <laughs> my, my little brown boots. My little pixie boots. Um, Robin Hood it was, was, was <laughs> laughed at me every now and again. Um, we're horrible, uh, yeah. And then, but see, I, I was I was telling him so for the story the other day. So I used to wear these boots. I love them boots. And they had the laces broke on them, and I replaced them with some laces that just weren't appropriate. They were old football boot laces, oh, but they were the only ones that were long enough that would go through all the, the holes and whatever. Anyway, so I had these boots, and then do you remember that when we played Sutton at home, when we were two 0 up, so we were two 0 up against Sutton, yeah. and then we threw those two goals away, two all, and then Michael Hickway scored in like the ninety sixth minute, yeah. and just all hell broke loose, and I stood on the chair on the row in front of us went through the chair and the bottom of the chair snapped the bottom of the boots that was the end of the, the brown pixie wow. boots so so Michael Hickway if you're listening you owe Danny a pair of brown boots yeah they were from River Island they were only 40 quid and I went back to buy some new ones they didn't have them in stock anymore so and we sold one pair apparently <laughs> mate they saw me coming <laughs> the rest of them got pulped and um any fashion faux pas? No, never. Okay. <laughs> I'm do you remember him? Um, do you remember the purple purple jacket that you wore to Wrexham away? Yeah, that wasn't my jacket though. You look good in it though. I did look it was good. His like, nans. Look, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was uh, that was our mate Barry's, wasn't it? And every time he used to turn up, these. Wait, scope, there. For these anyone scope. listening? Ant's about six foot one. Barry, our friend, is five foot four. No, At a push. Five foot six, maybe. How have you wore this jacket and why don't I remember this? He, um, do but, you not remember this? You remember Barry's purple coat? Yeah. Yes, I do, yeah. Because you Looks to... like he'd been put in the wash with another coat. It wasn't meant to be purple, that one. <laughs> it was like Harchester United memorabilia. Yeah. I don't know. He bought it too big, basically, and it fitted me. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I've worn that. It was a good I, coat. I, I get a lot of stick for my super dry jacket. Mm. Like a lot. I don't know why. I, I've not understood why. Obviously, clearly not down with popular culture. Do you mean the fact that it's always super dry in the same way that you always go to Burton? Yeah. yeah. Do you I have three sections of your wardrobe? One is Burton, one is super dry, and the other is Packers stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Burton's yeah. a bit, yeah. yeah. Dean, Dion Burton? Yeah, I also, mm. you know, yeah, I get a lot of stick for the Burton stuff. Just lols though, innit? Yeah. We're quite mean. I remember being about 16 and being really into like grime music and deciding I'm going to wear a pair of high tops and a cap with the hood <laughs> over the cap, like a new era one. Are you Bart Simpson? Yeah, it didn't go down well. It never, <laughs> never got worn again. I learned quick that day. And it was kind of like walking up to the ground, like, yeah. <laughs> you went the match dressed like this? Yeah, yeah. That is amazing. About 12 years ago, yeah. <laughs> 12 years ago? Yeah, I was about 16 at the time. That's too... I remember going to um, Leeds away with uh, with our mate Paul, and he said, "Don't wear colours because it's Leeds away, and we'll get filled in because it's Leeds did away." You go, did you go in all grey or something? <laughs> <laughs> Transparent clothes, <laughs> in black and white. And um, 
And obviously, like, he meant don't wear a, a tram, a white tram near top. Yeah. So I just wore a white England top instead. But I had these trainers on, and they were blue and yellow. And then I remember, it wasn't even Paul's head. Someone else was like, why have you got Leeds United trainees on, mate? And I was like, all right, just put a pair of shoes. <laughs> well, well, famously, Leeds own blue and yellow, so... Yeah, yeah they do. Classically, nothing to do with Boca Juniors. <laughs> right, so moving on then. Um, obviously had Danny Gray on from... Warpaint and Darren Eady, former footballer. And can you sort of give us and the listeners a, a background to why we want to do the interview and how it came about? Yeah, they got in touch with us, didn't they, and, and, and wanted to, to come and have a chat with us and we were more than happy to do so. It was a very interesting topic. Mm-hmm. It raised a lot of questions, some we're going to discuss after after the interviews played out. And um, Yeah, that was kind of the, the way it happened and, and we were a bit like... Don't really get many offers like that, like people coming up to us and going, "Oh, can can we be on your show?" It's a bit, a bit odd, really. We've been like, you know, sliding into DMs and being oh, really yeah. polite and stuff. Hey, so. Our DMs are flooded now, <laughs> offers after offers. Yeah, so the, it, well, they're more us messaging people. Sh- oh yeah, there's so many offers in there. <laughs> Getting quick while you can. So yeah, so that's kind of how it came about, and it was a really good interview. It was, yeah. it was, and and as always, we have a theme. Dan, do you want to let the listeners know what that theme is? Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of deliberation over this. Obviously, with with two guests, we wanted to make sure that it was kind of covered all of the stories that we that we heard. So we went for identity, the masks we wear, um, and we'll obviously be having a little bit of a chat about some of the themes that come up during the interview, post interview. Absolutely. So in the meantime, we'll leave you with uh, Danny and Darren's interview, and we'll see you on the other side. Danny, first of all, then you touched on it at the start, but for those who 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 don't know, what was the kind of practicalities of, of starting up Warpaint? Um, it was tough, mate. It was tough. So, you know, I had a full time job. Um, you had a decent career, I had a decent decent enough money, and you know, I've, I've been looking a long time about and I'm looking to see if there's anyone else coming out of the brand that I felt related to me as a guy. Um, and there just wasn't, so I decided to do it myself. So, to about 14 months, I, you know, I employed a girl full time. I still worked my other job, uh, started creating the brands that's everything from product, uh, the actual makeup, finding manufacturers, which is really tough, uh, because no one wants to speak to you because of your vol- order volumes and uh, creating a website, all of that. And then eventually when I did find a manufacturer, my because of what I didn't want to do was just rebadge another product, which a lot of people do do. I wanted to create my own and my opening order was just uh, just under 100 grand. Um, and I just didn't have 100 grand, so I had to remortgage my house, use all my savings um, and everything. And, you know, it was, it was a tough time. And then we launched November 2018. It was me and a 19-year-old girl in a flat. Um, you know, first month I thought we'd do a couple of grand sales and we did 11. Second month we did twenty eight. Third month we did forty five. You know, and it and it grew quite. It grew very quickly, and uh, it just showed. You know, because I've always known, right? That what Darren touched on there. There's there's a lot of guys that like, I didn't talk about my mental health for a long time. Like like people. I'm. You know, I've had a chat with Darren. Well, we had a long chat, and we're very very strange. We're so similar in a lot of ways, and I think there's a lot of guys out there, and I knew there was who maybe like i'm talking about makeup but a lot more than that that might be nicking their other halves or you know feeling uh, feeling uncomfortable look guys, do you know what the funny thing is guys can go 
to the gym, right? Every day, work out. The major- a lot of guys don't do working out so they're fit. They do it so they have a nice body because it makes them feel better. Yeah? It makes you feel more confident. Guys go out, buy nice clothes, and they wear nice clothes because it f- makes them feel more confident. Last uh, couple of years ago, the, the most open stores in the UK were barbershops because men are getting their hair now cut on average every three to four weeks instead of every six to eight weeks. And that's because it makes them feel better. right? And if you look at skincare and how skincare has sort of exploded over the last sort of 15, 20 years, like 20 years ago, guys hardly even put deodorant on, you know, where especially the older generation now, uh, th- 32% of our customer base are over 50 years old. And that's, you know, these guys are using skincare. And the reason they're doing it, again, it's not, you, you know, people don't, a lot of my, get guys that have skincare routines, and that's not because it's going to make them live another 10 years. Now, the skincare is not going to affect your lifespan. But what it does do, it reduces wrinkles, gives you a better complexion, and it makes you feel better. And that feeling is infectious for anyone. And for guys, it's been this whole thing around, you shouldn't cry. You should just, you, you know, you should just get on with it, not talk about anything. Um, and for me, especially something like makeup, you know, go to the gym as much as you want, wherever you want. But look, if you've got a spot in the end of your nose, oh God, no, you can't use makeup for that, you know, because it's a female thing. So we did have a lot of, you know, it's tough. Like we got a lot of stick and we like we still do today, you know, when we run and Instagram ads or any sort of marketing we do, we're going to get absolute polar opposites. And, you know, it affected me massively at the beginning and thinking, was well, I doing the right thing? But if I told you guys the amount of personal messages I get and the brand get about guys messaging us saying just thank you for what you're doing, it would it would scare people. Mm. I promise you now it would scare people the amount of messages we get. And so it has been really tough about, you know, starting a brand anyway is tough, but doing something. And I'll be honest, guys, I did not expect it to go like this. You know, we've, uh, we've been in like over 500 press articles. I've been on national telly, you know, and, but it's been hard. It's been really hard because we're trying to make it. And honestly, the mission for me is much more about selling makeup. It's about making guys feel comfortable to do whatever you need to do. God, I, I, look, I had a hair transplant. I didn't even need a hair transplant. But it made me feel better. Because for two years of my life, I thought I was losing my hair. And every minute of every day, that's all I thought about. Every minute, guys. You know, and, you know, that, all I want to do is give men a choice and let them feel that there's a choice. But I think if you have a choice with something or if you're dealing with something or struggling with something, if you know there's an out with it, I think it, it reduces straight away. Even if you don't use that out, if you know there's something there that can help you deal with that, I think that's that That for me is the, the overall goal with the brand. But it's been tough. You're, you, you you talked about your uh, issues with, with body dysmorphia. How did... I've, I read something that it was kind of from from bullying in school and you, you touched on that before how did that kind of manifest itself for your sort of everyday life yeah so so as I said, when i got bullied you know it was only a couple of weeks because of how what my ears were right into my head and literally a couple of weeks of bullying but you know after literally six months after that, i had an operation straight away because my mum saw how much it was affecting me at 12 years old you know so even at 12 my mum could see how bad i was i didn't really see it uh, you know, I put my hair in front of my ears. And then just then anything that would happen to me in terms of appearance, you know, I'd started obsessing about the way I looked and I had to look in a certain way uh, to make myself feel comfortable. And, you know, growing up from my teens, it was quite bad. Early 20s, it wasn't as bad. Um, but, you know, it would take me sometimes two, three hours to get ready. My mates, 
sort of knew about it, didn't know the extent, but you know, it just it, it grew and grew more and more, and it got worse and worse. And because I, I didn't talk to anyone about it, um, you know, people just thought I was vain. Uh, similar to like Darren's experience, you know, like people with, with assuming Darren was arrogant when he's totally not. He's the opposite because he, he just didn't feel comfortable. And growing up through my twenties, like late twenties, when I thought I was losing my hair, you know, it was one. I can, I can remember that. It was one day I looked in the rearview mirror of my car and there was a gap in my hairline. And I was like, oh god, what's that? And that was it for me for two years. And I mean, two years of looking every so much. So I used to drive home from work. It was about an hour's drive. And I wouldn't even realise I'd driven home because I'd be looking in the rearview mirror. And I would get in the car and smash my rearview mirror off any car I was in. So I just didn't bother looking. And, you know, it consumed everything. If I was on the, if I was talking to someone, I'd be checking the hairline, how much hair they got. And if you saw my, I don't know if you've seen any pictures of me, if you see my hair, I've got the thickest hair you've ever seen. You know? <laughs> did you, did do, you know, when you were a teenager, Danny, when you're in school, did you know that it was an anxiety thing? Because I, I certainly remember from from when I was a teenager when things that I now understand as being for me it was kind of social anxiety. But I obviously I don't at the time I didn't understand that's what it was. I just thought oh everyone feels like this. Did you were you kind of the same thing or were you were aware that it was a uh, something that was kind of consuming you? God, like I'm exactly the same. I did not realise at the time and. You know, it's funny when I had my second ear, my ears have been pinned back twice. And when I had them done the second time, because the first time they didn't really go back far enough, and even the doctor said, that's how bad they were, guys, in operations and fix them. But, this, um, you know, the second time I had it done, right, I saw my, I had my hair cut short around my ears, which I hadn't had done since I was like 10 years up, 12 years old. And my best mate turned around to me and was like, I'm so happy for you, mate, because you don't realize when we were out going out, the lads, all I'd do, would pull my hair in front of my ears subconsciously and you know what and when you're growing up through your teenagers I just knew I would like have to put my hair in front of my ears and like spots would be messing but I had no idea what these feelings were now I look back and go Jesus like you know yeah and it was that bad at 12 my mum put me in for an operation so it must have been bad but I just didn't have a clue I didn't have a clue about it we talk a lot on this podcast about um suicide and suicidal thoughts and stuff and did it ever get that bad? Did it go down those type of lines with you at all? How did you kind of manage those feelings, especially as a young person? Do you know what? It, it, yeah, I've always had, I've always had like these insecurities. And I've had to feel I look right before I do anything, you know. So it would take me a long time. But the the whole hair the hair thing for those two years, I was about twenty eight. Like that got really bad. Like when I say every minute of every day. Like I just, it's all I could think about, and and eventually it got to a point where you know I was drinking, not drinking, I wasn't that like an alcoholic or anything, but you know I'd go out and drink a lot and do other stuff I shouldn't have done. And one day I just come home into my missus' house, we were living at her mum's house, and it's four o'clock in the morning. I was off my, I was off my face, and I just broke. I absolutely, I went into my mother-in-law of all people and woke her up at four o'clock in the morning and said I just can't deal with this anymore. And that's that was when it was really bad. Like I never thought about doing anything like suicide but if i hadn't sorted something out i I, do you know what i mean i just don't know what i would have done or if i I hadn't done that first i can't deal with it anymore because everyone knew like even my mother-in-law said when i first met you i thought you were just vain because all you do is check in the mirror and then you know she then got to know me quickly and realized it wasn't but then when i told her that she you know they didn't realize quite how bad it was but then i opened up saying it's all i think about because the thing is what people don't see is what you're thinking about yeah 
and that and that was a big thing for them to go oh my god this is a lot worse than we think so yeah I think just that was the worst time for me and how did you start to kind of overcome those feelings or manage them better you know as you got older so for me like I think when you when you open up to someone like how Darren says when you first speak to someone about it and you realize you know people aren't going to judge you especially your family and your friends like no one's going to judge you that it was a massive weight for me to be able to talk about how I was thinking and then straight away when you get that support around you and they're right right what we're going to do is book you in to see this person you know I did do that and it wasn't for me um, but you know it helped me understand a few things and then having that support network around you who then say, right, we'll book you in to go and see about a hair transplant. And, you know, even little things like that, I'll go and see a specialist about a hair transplant. And they're like, you have absolutely nothing to worry about for your A's, da, 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 but if you want something done. And just to know, you know, just to go in and see that person and then just talk me through it. And then say, there's no options if you do. It helped me overcome the hair, not overcome the hair thing. Mention a hair transplant. Now don't even think about it. But I think it's, as soon as, I opened up, I started, honestly, I started managing it a lot better. I still suffer like today, don't get me wrong. Like people at work, you know, my, my staff still know. Sometimes I come in and, you know, I just can't, if I've got big interviews to do or, you know, I have to feel I look okay. And sometimes I'm, if I'm anxious or, you know, stressed, then I can come in and they know I'm not right because I'm normally like the life and soul and you know, upbeat. And then sometimes I just, you know, I feel like I've got someone's hand around my neck, you know, so... But I manage it a lot better now. But I think opening up was a massive thing. You spoke before, Danny, about when you launched your promotional video, which I do. Do you know what? Funnily enough, when I was doing the research for this, I do actually remember seeing that online, like coming across and onto, I think it must have been onto my Twitter feed. And it, it, as you say, it went viral. You received millions of views. And there's a lot of sort of conversation about the branding, the messaging, you know, the product and all the rest of it. And you said before that it was, that was quite a difficult, you know, period in terms of launching it. How did you deal with that in terms of all of a sudden there was this huge thing that you'd started and a lot of pressure, a lot of attention? Yeah, really tough, mate. I, I remember now I was at my sister's, my sister's birthday. Uh, we were out for a meal and the girl who worked for me at the time called me up and said, uh, damn, we're going viral. I said, what do you mean? Like the advert, we've never done like ads on Twitter. The advert on Twitter is, uh, it's gone viral and I remember looking at my phone and it was something like 300,000 views within a couple of hours. And I was like, oh my God. And then I'd look back 10 minutes later, it was like 600,000, 1.5, 2.4, um, you know, come in the next day and I, literally I couldn't put the phone down without it ringing from press from all over the world saying, you know, and the titles were Toxic Masculinity. And look, I, at my sister's meal, I don't think I've possibly ever felt like that you know, by a click of him, the guy, because something I'd worked for a long time and risked everything, my house, my family, you know, I thought it was all taken away from me from that this bad press. And, you know, the next day I went into the office and I fucking just didn't stop crying because, you know, people come in and say it's all right, but that's, you know, when you're in it, it's tough. And that's the same with mental health, you know, when you're in something like that, you feel like there's no way out. And now I look back at it, right, and it's, I... Uh, you know, Twitter took our ad down when it got to 8 million because there was a copyright issue, which actually wasn't copyright in the end. But, you know, if I could go back there now, I'd I'd amplify it. I'd want it to get to 100 million views. You know, but at that time, I didn't know how to deal with it and what was going on and the fallout from it. And that's so much like mental health where when you're in it, you just don't know how way to get out of it. And then when, afterwards, you know, but where we got all that backlash, it was stuff like... 
we're racist because of the name. Um, there was comments about, oh, we don't uh, we don't service products for black people, which is absolutely ridiculous because when I launched the brand, I had as many light shades as dark shades. Um, we, you know, there's all of this stuff, but that is what happens in the media. And mm. you know, that was my first experience on national media. Now, since then, we've had a lot more and I, I, I know how to handle it, but... But back then, it was like for me, it was the end of the world, and um, yeah, it was. It was, but that then just quickly the other side of that, you know, we're getting all this national media all over the world, and but we had record sales for five days straight, and personal messages coming into us as a brand saying, "We think I think it's amazing what you're doing, but what's going to happen is that if you have, it's exactly the same when we talk about gay footballers or stuff within football. If you've got a crowd of let's say 10,000 away fans all going at one thing. But there's people in that who don't agree with what they're saying. There's no way they're going to turn around and fight all of them. Mm. You know, and that's exactly what happened to us. But we had a lot of private messages come in and record sales. And then, but off the back of it, it got the conversation started, which needed to happen. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it was tough at the time, mate. Did, did it ever make you want to like walk away? Did you ever think, oh God, I wish I'd not done this. Let's just knock it on the head now. Yeah, well... For a couple of days, I, like, I don't think it was like I would never walk away from it, never. But I thought the brand was dead, you know, which was a scary, scary thought that overnight, it's like, God, resonate with Darren, you know, you wake up and someone told you your career's over, like, to, to be what he had, like, I can totally rip, like, I can't understand what you're waiting through. But I had a, a moment where I thought, right, it's all over. That's it, you know, and my, you walk, my mind's going wild. Um, but you know, off the back of that, it gave us a brand, you know, and that's what people say, you know, it said is like, no presses. So what is it back there? No press. What is it? The same, something about it. Or, any, or press any press is good press. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what happened because after that, a lot of people wanted to talk to us and, you know, I had a GQ interview a week later, which was very positive. And, you know, off the back of that, you know, I then went on Dragon's Den and, you know, off the back of that, but it got us, it got us recognised. You know, when we got all of this absolute backlash, no one picked up on my story because before that, you know, I didn't, I didn't really put about my story with the brand. It was sort of hidden within the website, and then, you know, I, and no one ever, no one took the mick out of that. But then later on, it made me realise that you know, my story has to be there to show a purpose of why the brand's been around. You know, why yeah. it come, It doesn't come from someone just trying to find a gap in the market because it comes from my heart. One of the, the questions that I was quite interested in asking you, just from reading some of the some of the articles, I read quite a few, I went back and read a few of the articles from from when you did launch, which, which as you say, there was, there was quite a lot of backlash that you got on the back of some of that stuff. And one of the things that it was about was about the name Warpaints, yeah. which... Do you know what the funny thing was? The first thing the name made me think of was there is a musical called um, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is about a, a young kid from Sheffield who wants to be a drag queen. And the drag queens call their makeup war paint and there's a song about it. And that was the first thing that came to my mind, actually, when I read the name. But it's it's of, of, often been used as a term to describe the wearing of makeup by women and transgender people and, and, and different parts of those type of communities. Where did the name come from? And did you have any concerns about appropriation when you were naming the brand? So the, the name came about eight years ago when I, can't, I watched a TV programme, can't even remember what it was, and so a woman just turned around and went, oh, she was going out, she was going to put my wall paint on, and I was like, that's the name, straight away. And, you know, I 
what I need to do with the name, right? It's very important, especially for what we're trying to do. If I call it Danny Gray's makeup, you know, it's it's not gonna have I need something to help break down the, the stigma straight away from a name. And at the time, you know, we have had a little bit of backlash about it, especially then we did. But if you look up the, in the English dictionary, it actually says it's a word, for, it's a slang for makeup. You know, and when we went for the trademark, we had to go through a big battle to get it because even the governing body said it's too much of us, it's too familiar for what for makeup to use it. But eventually, we got it. And now, since then, you know, all we've had after that backlash is just everyone's been massively positive about the name. Like, every honestly, so many comments I'll get on messages saying, I love the name, I love the brand, you know. So, um, and I did actually think retailers might be a bit weary about it, but you know we're launching retailers all over the world. We just launched in yesterday into 15 stores in Japan, uh, which could potentially be a lot more. You know, we're just launching Ireland, uh, got viral there. We're just launching in Germany, launching not you know, and these are all massive partners. We just confirmed we're launching in uh, uh, you know Reese, the men's store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're just launching in there and uh, some others and. And no, and no one's mentioned about the name, so uh, you know I'm not too worried about it. This was purely just out of interest for myself, just from when I was looking through your website and stuff in the last few days. Given that the, the brand itself was launched because of you know, as you say, as a response to your kind of problems that you'd had with body dysmorphia, do you think there's a? I mean, and this is purely just from a. Um, just from an outsider looking in, do you think there's a bit of a juxtaposition in the use of kind of sort of young attractive in shape models that you use on the website um so if you actually so a lot of the stuff so what we look what i wanted to do was not use those type of models right so when i when i launched the brand and we have been using for a long time where everyday guys like putting on product um and you know we're using those to promote the brand externally you know the the, the interaction wasn't great with it you know and so we've used like those sort of models you know in that shape and you know and it's just like people have i don't know why it just drives more people to have a look and that's what i want to do is get people to interested in it and see what it's about but we've actually funny enough uh, weirdly today we've just launched a program to uh invite uh the first 50 customers to do a video review for us uh, are going to get a free free products uh, and we've already had it's been an incredible amount of videos we've had uh, received because we're going to show other people using the products themselves so um, yeah we, we're sort of you know is that that is what we're changing at the minute but as I said like it's how we have a business to run as well and you know without without sales we can't survive and it's just with that those models we were using um, they just interact better and people are more interested to look at it. And that's, I don't know if it's a good thing or no, it's, it's not a great thing because I never wanted that. Hang on there. The, Darren, just for, for yourself then, you've you've been quite vocal as well in the past about your own uh, mental health struggles. Do you want to give us an idea as to, to, to why you were, you were, uh, you agreed to come on, on the podcast for us? From my point of view, I've, I've always been pretty open about it. And I finished playing football at 28 um, through, through uh, injury. Um, and I'd had 26 operations on me. Um, but for me, I always got back from every one apart from the 26th. So I was never going to be a problem. Um, you know, I, I then woke up in a um, recovery room in, in the hospital. Um, and normally in the recovery room, you're just on your own. 
I mean, you get taken back to your ward. When I woke up, my, my physio was there, the doctor was there, my wife was there. Uh, and all of a sudden it was like, woke up and I was told your career's over. So for one day of being a Premier League footballer to literally the next, having everything taken away from you, all known since I was a kid, all I'd ever done. So overnight, it was from one thing to another. And that was just a massive shock to the system. And and I kind of floated through it for, for quite a few years. I, I kind of earned a bit of money out of football and thought, you know, security, I'm okay. It's all that. And it came more about actually what am I actually doing with my life? And and it, and it sounds great. People think, you know what, I'd love to better retire at 28. But I got, and I got in it and I was in it and I was doing nothing and every day seemed the same. It was uh, it was mundane. You know, I was getting up at 10 o'clock roughly and not really doing anything with my day. Weekends became the same as a weekday. Even holidays became a bit of a bird because it was out of the norm. So everything started to change. And for me, it was actually not realising. I didn't realise. And I think that's the biggest problem. I felt the way I did and I couldn't understand why I felt that way. But when you heard... You know, I had words like depression and anxiety and all that for a while. And surely it's got to feel worse than this. So I didn't realise just putting the two together to think, you know, what, and, and looking at thinking crap I'm suffering from it. So it took me years to actually probably suffering to a certain level and then dropping down to the depths like I did to think I need to get some help. And for me, it was a it was a massive point in my life where I thought I've got to reach out to someone. And that for me was was the turning point. It was just a massive load off my shoulders the immediate time that I opened up and I knew by opening up and talking about it, I knew in time it would make me feel better, but still in the back of my mind, it was telling me, my mind was telling me, you know, you've got to be careful here because people are going to judge you and there's going to be people thinking, what have you got to be depressed about? What are you anxious about? You're a professional footballer. You're having a great life. You've had the time of your life, which is true. I, I did, but I don't care what walk of life you're in, whatever you do, if the thing you love, doing most gets taken away from you overnight it drives you but realizing and it drives you down and down and down and the, the worst thing for me was i sat on it for years thinking i'll be okay because when i played football i always needed a bit of anxiety most footballers do is that pressure of it you get nervous before a game you feel like that so i felt like that on a daily basis now i'm thinking that's okay because it's just how i was feeling when i was playing football but then obviously when you're in normal life and you're feeling like that it wouldn't be right to feel like that. You know, I, I couldn't go into my local post office and look my postman in the eye, or I couldn't go into the shops and look at people. People think you're being arrogant or anything, but I just couldn't look people in the eye. And, and I kind of hid myself away, do too much to the point where I thought, you know, I, I needed help. And, and that was when I reached out. And I did, and I got sick, and I understood that. Actually, the outpouring of support massively shocked me. I didn't expect it. And, and that's probably... Now, you're probably talking 10 years ago when it wasn't quite so accepted. So, you know, I'd like to think I was one of the first ones that sort of came out and talked about my mental health and and big changes have happened in and the, the game itself and, and across society is in a much better place than it was. There's still a long way to go. Um, but I'm kind of proud of the fact that I came out and as, as kind of one of those first people that lifted up and said, look, it can happen to anybody. The background you're in and the amount of calls and the amount of emails and stuff after that from fellow footballers, from from people I knew actually opened up to me and saying, I felt the same way. I feel the same, you know? So it just shows. And for me, it, was, it was a weight off my mind. It was about actually sharing that with someone that actually felt the same. And I knew all those people that then coming to me were thinking, that's a bit of a relief. I feel the same at times. So it was, it was a real eye opener to realize just how many people I knew in my circle of life, just in my life actually had similar issues. And that was, that was a big eye opener to me to say, 
suffering. Society suffering here, not just footballers. Everybody's suffering from whatever walk of life. And, and, and that, for me, was a, a turning point for me to make sure I got the help I needed. Did you have a little bit of a crisis of identity at that moment in time? Yeah, I think I did. Again, probably without really realising it. Um, I think, as I say, all I ever knew uh, from the age of, from a child, and I, you know, I could kick a football about was football. Um, I was in the public eye. Um, I was I was well known. Um, my career was on a on a, you know, a pretty highward, um, you know, trajectory. It, it, it was doing well, uh, and then it was taken away. You know, I was, I was in about the England squad at the time under Glenn Hoddle. Um, and and then my career suddenly finished, and, and it was definitely that. It was almost like, what do I do next? That 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 struggle for identity was was a big thing because you know all of a sudden I was a, a former professional footballer rather than being a professional footballer. And and I understand, I know I understood pretty quickly. Actually, once you're finished, nobody really cares about you anymore. And that sounds, you know, not like I need to be cared about, but for me it was about being in that public eye all the time. You know, I was always being judged. You know, it's a goldfish bowl being a footballer. You know, you live in a goldfish bowl. You're public property. So people are judging you the whole time. And, and as much as that sounds weird that um, you don't want to be around that, it was kind of reassuring that you're in it as well because you, you knew that was part of your job. You knew often when you were playing some of the teams, if you were getting pelts from the crowd, you knew you were doing something right. So it's a bit of a yin and yang with it. It was kind of, it was kind of very obstructive in your own brain, but you needed part of that to, to make you do better. And, you know, I heard Danny there talking about social media and said about how a bad platform Twitter is. And, you know, I played before there was even social media and, and football crowds was, was really, you know, you know, their hatred had a platform. That was, that was where 75, 80,000 people could give you absolute pelters and not get anything back. And, and, but footballers, you were just expected to take that. And you did, and you learned how to do that. Um, so, but I think again, you didn't realize just how destructive that was until you're out of it. And then you look back on it and you think, well, you know, I, I was a big one for when I played in front of so many thousand people, they can all be cheering my name. You can all cheer, but I'll remember the one that caused me a wanker without a doubt. And that would really bother me. That one person would bother me and that would go home thinking, why do you think that? Why did he say that? Why did that person feel that way about me? So I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I, I want to keep everybody happy. And I think footballers have a lot of that you know you've got to be single-minded they're going to be wrong you've got to be like that to be able to be successful in your football career but you're also quite sensitive i think and, and you want people's adulation you know you want people liking you um that, that's what scoring goals all about when they're all you know cheering your name and celebrating because you scored that goal you know, you've given them that so to have all that taken away and, and no outlet for that was was really difficult and identity was was right you know i, I then thought well, what am i going to do next we're going to next and I'm, and I'm quite an entrepreneurial guy I, I, I like to think I'm you know I, I've got a lot to offer and, and but for me a few years it was like I've, I've got nothing to offer what can I offer I've got no qualifications I didn't see beyond my football career so it took me a while to think like it took other people really to say you know after talking to you an intelligent guy you, you know you know what you're doing you, you're you're involved in a lot of things and you know you've got a lot to offer it took people to kind of almost tell me that again to reaffirm like I was worthy of something because after a football career, like, well, I've kind of done my bit now in society. I've fulfilled what I was kind of put on the earth to do, but I was 28. And it's like, I've got a hell of a lot of my life to go through. I need to, I need to find another outlet. I need to be successful in other things. And, and that's what drives me now is, is, you know, it's actually realizing when I first finished at 28, I thought I said, I can retire now and, I've, and, and it'll be okay. But 28, I was thinking, you know, I've got another three quarters of my life to go potentially.
So for me, it was about you know, that makes me 120. It shows how old I could have been. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. had a long time of my life left, and it was thinking, well, where do I go next? What do I do next? And, and without having people's help, and there wasn't any help out there, and and that for me was where do I go? Uh, and for me, it was it was about realizing in the end, it was down to me to do that. It was down to me to get the help. Um, yeah, so it was it was it was a really tough time, really tough time. Yeah, I mean, I'm 28 now, and I can't imagine having my life being told that what I'm good at or what I like to do I couldn't do anymore it, it would just be so destroying and obviously very alien when you've probably had a lot of structure in your life it's quite interesting well, really absolutely. sorry go on yeah because pe- yeah, people would people would you know they would say to me finish playing or you you know you still go and watch your games and, and you, you know you love football clearly I love football like you must still enjoy it and I'm like no I didn't do I didn't even watch it I didn't go and play it. I didn't do any of it for get involved in any media work for years because I always describe this to people as the thing I love doing the most you know you pick your passion you pick the thing you love doing the most since you're a kid that gives you that you know you actually what you go and work for so you can experience at weekends or enjoyments in life whatever you decide to do if somebody then takes that away from you then they say to you well you can't do it anymore but what you can actually do is go and watch your mates doing it it was like why would I want to do that why would I want to put myself through that so I completely shut myself away from it for, for a long time and it's only when in the last sort of 10 years where I was 35 and um, my, my other friends who I was playing with were retiring uh, and, and didn't feel sad so I was thinking well I'm not going to be playing now anyway because I'm older so it, it took a while before I could even really step back into that arena uh, you know even even now even now when I go down to games uh, whenever it is and, and you know the smells the sounds it's just it's just a reminder of what I lost um, but I've I've come to terms with it now. I've I've learned to deal with it, and and it's much more manageable than it was. But it took me it took me a long time, a real long time. Yeah, and you touched on being one of the first to sort of come out and uh, talk about your struggles, and it really wasn't the environment to do so back then, was it? I think football it's still got a lot of things it gets wrong, but it seems to be moving in the right direction. But I can imagine it was almost terrifying back then to show what would be deemed a weakness in in any way. Well, it was, but I got to a point where I felt I had no other choice. Um, it, it, it was kind of prompted by a couple of things, really. Well, really one thing, essentially, I got to a point where I was feeling as bad as I was feeling. And I know you talked to Danny about, did you ever get to the point where you, you felt like you wanted to take your life? And I felt so low, but I never, ever felt like I wanted to take my, my life. And, I, and I've talked about this in, in sort of recent things I've done. And it was, I think it's because I was too much a coward. Oh, I was too much of a coward to think, you know, I can't do it. I can't do it to myself. And that sounds a selfish thing to say again, but I was too frightened to even do that. But the one thing that prompted me to to finally make that, that stance to go out and do something was Gary Speed. And I remember sitting at home thinking, uh, and the sheer panic that went across me when I heard about Gary Speed taking his life. I remember seeing him on Match of the Day the night before, you know, we've all talked about it and, and we've seen the images and how happy he was and, you know, he was manager of Wales, and he had this lifestyle, and he had this beautiful wife and kids, and and a lovely, you know, lovely lifestyle and a great job. And and I thought to myself, I don't feel like that at the minute. I don't feel like I want to take my life. I'm sure Gary Speed didn't feel like that. But what point did it then turn for him where he did? And that was for me thinking that could be me. That could be me at some point, any point. I could think I want to take my life, and it was like I need to get help. I need to do something now because that for me was a, a, a massive kicking the bollocks to say you've got to do something because you're going to feel like him at some point or you potentially could feel like him and, and that really for me was was the, was the turning point. In the environment you were in and when you first retired from football 
Was there any support once once you retired? Originally, it was uh, I spoke to Leon McKenzie. Um, I obviously known him from his time at Norwich, and, and I knew he'd he'd previously spoken just before I did about it. So I called him, um, and I spoke to Clark Carlisle. I got put to Clark Carlisle at the PFA, and and it all the, the kind of floodgates opened up then, and I was I was shocked just how poor the PFA were dealing with it at the time, and I knew how many players were suffering, and I spoke to people inside the PFA. And they were like, we're overwhelmed. I can't tell you how many calls we're getting. And we do not have the facility. We do not have anything in place or nothing in place to be able to deal with it. Don't get me wrong. They've, they've developed now and, and things are a lot better than they were. So it became a mission of mine to think, well, how can I make things better for other players? That was my focus. You know, I could help other people. But for, for me, it was about, right, where can I help other players? That's my first focus. So I, I approached the PFA and I said, this isn't good enough. You need to be having something in place. And I went down and... I won't tell you who said it, but I went down and seen some of the real big players at the PFA and I sat in a room with them and I explained my situation and I'd, and I'd about how I felt and, and talked about it. And one of the head guys at the PFA said to me, isn't this just the new glass ankle, the new glass back? And I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, isn't it just an excuse to get time off work? And I was horrified. I, can't, I was like, wow, that's the attitude we got. That's my representative. That's my governing body. They are the people that are representing me who have that opinion about it. And I was shocked. And that, from then I was like, right, I've got to make change here. I've got to try and do something. And, you know, after that, I continued to speak to the PFA and I pushed them and pushed them. And, and I set up something called the One Retreat because originally I wanted to do like a, an area where, where players could go to, like a, a hotel in the country. They could get away, not to get any help, but just to get away from it, just a place where they felt comfortable. And they wouldn't fund a, a big project like that. And I said, well, you need some kind of telephone. I said, didn't even have a telephone at the time they didn't have anywhere for players to ring then you'd ring up the normal option at the PFA and say can I speak to someone about your mental health and you're not going to get someone like you know just using a name for example like a Wayne Rooney or David Beckham's going to ring up they're not going to do it so it's like where do they go to get this help? they're not going to ring up reception and say I speak to someone about mental health you needed a direct line to someone who understood and it wasn't there so I then set up this one retreat where we set up a, a public line um, set, well, set a public line a helpline directly for these players to go into um, and we set it up. I went back to the PFA. They funded it. They funded it for me to be able to set this up. I then took it back to the PFA. We're then going to get the second part of the funding to, to roll out and go into other areas of, of uh, support. And then turn around and said, we're going to do our own one now. And it was fine. You know, it, that didn't bother me. The fact is it kick-started them to get their asses in gear to, to have a provision to which they've now got. And I'm, and I'm quite proud of that. That's not my baby in terms of what they're doing now. I would like to think I played a massive kickstart in, in getting them where they are because, as I say, when I first spoke to the PFA about it, it was it was dreadful. I mean, it was it was it was an afterthought, and, and it was it was really shocking. The, the, the issue I have with with the PFA and when it where it kind of started was, you know, the PFA do some fantastic work. Don't get me wrong, but they are funded generally by the Premier League uh, money. That's where it comes from, you know, uh, and and Sky money. You know, they all get they get funded from that. So so footballers. And I'm, I'm still, this is probably still the case today. Footballers were paying, when I was playing, £50 a year subscription to be the PFA. And it's like, why would you care as a player what your representatives are doing if you pay that much? You know, they do a nice thing at the end of the season. They do these fabulous awards. But they're paying £50 a year. Why is someone who's on hundred grand a week going to care what they're paying? But so, And they did it in different, different countries. So in Italy and Spain, they do it as a percentage of your wage. So somebody's on a high wages would pay more. 
And then you've got more insight into it. You've got more of an involvement. You've got more of an interest in it to make sure your governing body are providing what they want you to do. Your union are providing what they should be doing. But for me, and it's still the same now, you know, it's hidden. It's kind of hidden away that this money's been brought in and they do all these good things. Yeah, they are. But you know what? Current players don't really give a shit about the PFA. And that's the brutal truth of it. They don't. They're not interested because they're playing. They're getting paid well. They're playing football and interested. It's more about when you finish the game and what they can provide after that. That's where the help is needed. And by that time, you're forgotten about. And they try it now and it has got better. Uh, it, it just needs remodeling. The whole thing of the PFA and the structure and how it's funded for me needs remodeling because if you're a union that's most of your funding coming from the Premier League, where's the pool going to be from? It's going to be from the Premier League. If most of your funding is coming from your players and your union, that's where that's where the money's going to get paid to and that's where the, the decision-making is going to go to and people have more of an interest in it. At the moment, it's, it's coming... Don't no, get me wrong, the funding's great, but the decision-making is being made by the wrong people. In terms of your day-to-day life now, Darren, how do you manage your um, mental health? Um, it's been a learning curve. I think, as Danny says, I think you. it's strange because once you've been through it, 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 it makes you a stronger person. It brings you out the other side. And do you know what? I've become a lot more empathic. I've been a lot more sympathetic to other people. Um, sometimes I'll probably be, before I'll be a little bit more judgmental and easy to snap on people and 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 be a bit judgmental when they're they're a bit snappy or, or not feeling great. But now I'm a lot more kind of step back from it and, and and try and think why are they feeling like that. So for me, it's definitely changed me as a person. It's made me a, it's made me a better person going through what I've been through. Um, and I've learned just to how to deal with it. I know my triggers. I know when they're coming, and I know how to deal with them. And and that for me sometimes is is different things. Sometimes I need to just shut myself away. You know, I know for a couple of days I need to just shut myself away, not really engage with too many people. Then I know it gets better. But that, that's been the, the kicker for me, really, is is actually knowing in a few days' time I will feel better. Whereas before, when I was in the depths of it, as, as Danny said, you don't see an end to it. But I know now, even when I'm going for a, a, a longer period, I know there's an end to it. And knowing there's an end to it brings you out of it quicker. And and I don't suffer anywhere near where I used to be. And, and you know, I'm on no medication. I was, I was taking medication before. And, and do you know what? That was... At the time, it was brilliant. It, it took the edge off the top and the bottom, and it helped me massively. But I don't take any medication, and I manage it just purely with with my lifestyle. And, I, and I've learned how to do that. And I think that's skills that everybody can learn. It really is because we all feel like it to different levels through through our lifetimes. Uh, but once you've experienced it, everybody's different. You know, some people are lock themselves away. Some people exercise, and I know people talk a lot about endorphins from exercising. For me, I hated it. You know, people say you should go out and go for a run and make you feel better. No, it didn't. I hated it. I hate exercise now. And and it didn't make me feel better. It made me feel worse because all, all it did was remind me of my knee hurting again and I can't play football. So for me, it was about learning your triggers, learning how to deal with them, how I deal with them. Uh, and whatever's right for somebody else feels right. Away. And exactly as Danny's saying, you know, if that's wearing makeup, if that's dyeing your hair, if it's trimming your beard, it's getting your hair cut, whatever you do to make you feel more confident and feel better about yourself is the way to go. And, and and that's different for everybody. And that's why, as Danny said, you know, who cares who judges you? You know, you, at the end of the day, it's down to you feeling self-confident. And you're at your best when you're confident. You're at your best. You play your best in football, you know, everything in life, you know, in sport in particular. Confidence is a massive part of it. It's a confidence game. But in any walk of life, you're going into an interview, you're going to work, you know, you're going to be at your best when you're your most confident. And if you get that from doing different things, taking on different views and and you know, putting makeup on, doing your hair, whatever you want to do, putting a nice suit on, however that gets you to feel the most, you're most confident to get the best out of you, 
is the way forward. And that's what we're trying to get across. And that's what Danny's trying to get across. I just want to know a little bit more about Norwich City, really, because from the outside looking in, it's not your kind of regular, stereotypical football club um, owned by Delia Smith, um, has, you know, obviously the links with, with Justin Fashion New. And, and I just kind of want to know what's it like being at a club like that, is that kind of stuff ingrained in in the plays that are coming through as well? You no, know, I, I run a TV station now, so I host their TV show for their games, and uh, we're doing stuff at the minute. And it, and it interests me what the perception is of Norwich City outside of it from other people as well. So I'll be interested to hear your views on that as well. But from the inside, it's like you know, I, I moved up from the West Country when I was sixteen um, to, to come across to Norwich and made my debut at eighteen. Um, but I made that trip because Norwich always had a great history of bringing young lads through. You know, they had a rich history of, of, of relying on youth and bringing young lads through into their first team and, and that way. So for me, at that age, it was it was an easy decision to make to give me the best opportunity to, to get first team football and to play. Um, and it was for, right from the start. It was, you know, the, I remember the youth team officer who's a youth, youth development officer at the time was called Gordon Bennett, who used to be involved with Bristol Rovers. I mean, brilliant name. Um, but you know, he he was he used to drive down and pick us up and drive us up to Norwich. Bearing in mind it was like four hours away, in a day, and then take us back to the, back to the game afterwards. But it was just that, that real feel about the club. that you knew when you got there that everybody there was a real togetherness about it, and, and it's always felt like that, even to the point where, you know, we talk about Delia Smith being the owner, and you know, Delia Smith did my wedding cake, you know, <laughs> and when I played. I know, but you know, and then when I left Norwich, or I was sold by Norwich to go to Leicester, and I didn't want to go. You know, I, I remember getting called in by Bruce Rio, and he said, uh, "Leicester have come in for bid with you for you. Um, you know, you're going to be their rep sign in. Uh, you're free to go and speak to them." And I'm like, well, "I don't want to go. I'm 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 really happy. I was on good money. I was enjoying my football. I didn't want to go." And Bruce Rio turned around to me and said, "If you don't go, the club's going to go into administration." So. It, it, again, it was kind of like, oh, wow, what a big decision this has gone put on my shoulders as a as a sort of 25, 26-year-old lad. You know, of course, the club I love, I'm not going to let that happen to it. So, so I ended up leaving, but Delia sent me a postcard and, and drew a picture of a face crying on it. You know, and I've still got that to this day. So there's this there's this real connection between the top of the club to the bottom of the club. And I don't, when I say top of the club, I mean, you know, the owners and the people in charge of the club, right down everybody, you know, the, the people who work at the football club from the tea lady to... To, to everybody, the kit man, the, the staff, you know, everybody within the football club knows everybody. And and that for me is is vital. Early, I think, as you say, because of the location, it has to be. Um, you know, they're a self-funding club um, and, and there's not many of them out there. You know, they rely on their gate receipts. They rely on sponsorship from from local businesses and, and manufacturing. And I think that's that's admirable. Is it the right thing to do with current client in football is, is another argument. Can you compete at the very highest level for a long period of time I'm not sure you can but you know what it feels good to be part of it because they do things the right way and and, and this is why the partnership for me is, is just brilliant because as Danny said and as, and as you guys have said Norwich do things slightly differently they put themselves out there challenge things they like to be seen to be um, you know breaking down stigmas and, and doing things the right way and, and, and not just in terms of their approach on the pitch, they, they do it off the pitch. They back it up all throughout the football club, the way they go about the sponsors, who they, they partner with. It's all very, very well thought through. Um, you know, they, they don't tend to just take the money. You know, it, I'm sure there's there's sponsors they've got where they think, you know what, it is, you know, we've got to take it. It's, it's that good. But actually, there's a lot of thought that goes on in the background in terms of who they associate themselves with. And, and speaking to people I have done since 
since sort of been involved with the football club in, in the backroom staff as I do now with the TV station is just finding out how people think about Norwich and, and you you've all said it you know Norwich has this reputation of of being a little bit different to everybody else they have to be but you know I think it's it's you know for me it's I'm, I'm very proud to be to have been associated with them and I guess uh, I'll move on to, to Danny now obviously you've recently announced a partnership with Norwich and could you just tell us how that came about and kind of was it was it always an ambition of yours to be involved with a football club or was it because Norwich was was the one that kind of approached you and, and said look we want to do this so before we actually had the first discussion with Norwich you know I've been talking to I can't tell you who but you know people that would shock you about doing a partnership with them um, and that's what I wanted to do you know I wanted to do something that people would go holy shit right well Warpants, like they've done a partnership with them like, I didn't expect that so <clears throat> Norwich actually reached out there was a guy there called Josh who reached out to me. So he'd been following me on LinkedIn for literally since I launched. And, you know, he always, you know, I actually saw him message quite a few times and a few comments saying, Dan, you need to get into football. And I, I was like, I, I suppose I said, I oh, know it's just not yet. We haven't got the budget. He then moved to Norwich. He was at Birmingham City, he moved to Norwich. And, you know, he approached me and said, Dan, look, the board would put something together. Um, and, you know, it's not just me calling up for you to sponsor. Like, we've got a lot of ideas around it. So, look, we had, we had a call and, you know, I was in, mate. I was in within that call because, and I'll be honest, it was, you know, in terms of the money, it was, you know, it's a, it was a, it's a massive stretch for us where we are at the minute. Like we've just, you know, we recently did a round of investment um, about three months ago, sizable round, but you know, this was a big jump of investment for us. Um, but they made, you know, they tore up the rule book with it a little bit and they were so behind what we're doing as a brand. And that's what, you know, they gave them the whole thing about what they do with Justin Fashion New and the pride flag. They do stuff different. They want to use us to get this message across what we're trying to do. And for me, you know, that is what I, anything I do with any partnership, with any supplier, anything, I want them to believe in what we're doing. And Norwich 100% did. And I'll be honest, as we're signing with Norwich, I was speaking to other football clubs. Um, just by chance, we were speaking to others. None of them had the passion. Uh, you know, I was speaking to other sports, rugby clubs, you know, no one had the passion in Norwich and that is for me what meant the most. So, you know, and within, you know, we had that first chat and we signed the deal within, I think, five days, you know, to do it. So, you know, it was a very quick, you know, I went to, because we got a board, went to the board, they loved it, you know, and uh, when we launched it, um, you know, we did actually get coverage on Sky Sports News about it. And if you think this year there must be, if you look at all the top teams, um, in rugby and football and cricket and whatever you want, you know, there must be thousands, there's thousands of partnerships every year and we were the only ones to get any coverage at all. Uh, and hopefully there's a lot more to come. Where I, well, there will be more to come. And, you know, that's what this is about. And don't get me wrong, guys, this is, I promise you, it, this is not about me going to put makeup on players. Like, they even mentioned about doing that. I said, no, that's not what it's about. I did it on the interview on Sky. I said, this is not what this is about. Coming up and me putting fake makeup on guys who probably aren't going to wear it to try and make a point. This is about breaking stereotypes for men to be able to use things to feel comfortable and what a better platform to do it down said than football. You mentioned you I mentioned think... hair transplants before, didn't you? Yeah. And um, it just took me back to those... You remember the Shane Warne ones? Um, the cricket ones. Darren Goff, Shane Warne. <laughs> I think Michael Vaughan did one. Yeah. And I think it kind of did break down that barrier. And, and you see it now with... You know, for instance, James Norwood at Ipswich, which is just down the road from Norwich. 
Uh, like the conversation has moved from taking the mick out of it to acceptance. Hair transplants, Wayne Rooney, 2011, yeah, came out yeah. and said, and it very, very, because he had to, because people say, where's his hair come from? He very clearly came out and said, I've had a hair transplant. Everyone took the mick out of it to begin with. Rio Ferdinand even said, oh, is he going to be wearing a hairband next? All of this came out. Now, with my hair transplant, the conversation is, oh my God, you've had a hair transplant. It looks amazing. Where'd you get it done? Right? The conversation, because those people have made the difference, it's opened up. And hair, by the way, is a massive, massive, massive thing for men about, you know, it's a huge issue, right? And something like hair transplant, and it's so good now, it's undetectable. For people like Wayne Rooney to come out and do it, I promise you they've saved lives. I don't know that sounds dramatic, but it's not because I've read and read and looked at everything about hair loss. There is unbelievable the amount of men who are absolutely in bits about it. And to know that there is an option for these guys to do. And the conversation's completely changed now, too. It's okay. And this is why I hope it's going to happen with makeup. I'm not hoping. I know eventually with makeup, it'll be like, I'll just use a bit of concealer. And it, the chat will be, oh, what you use makeup? It will change to use a bit of concealer. And I'm talking about guys, right? We have guys who have rosacea. We have guys who have acne. We have guys who have dark under eyes. We have guys who have capillaries broken of all ages. I'll tell you a quick story. A woman messaged us saying, oh, well, a 16-year-old son, he won't look up. He won't go out because he's got rosacea. He will never have his picture taken. And he would. I've tried to get him to use makeup. He will never, ever use it. I found your brand. I showed it to him. He tried concealer. And she said, here, she said, I'm crying as I'm sending you this. Here's a picture of him. Guys, that's how powerful this sort of stuff is, right? And forget, let's forget all the people who are going to take the piss out of it or say it's ridiculous. I'm not saying everyone needs it for this reason. There's a lot of guys out there, a lot of messages we get that would shock people about a little using a little bit of foundation or a little bit of concealer or something like that, how it can help them feel. That is what we are about as a brand. Welcome back. That was Danny and Darren's interview. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, just going to have a little bit of a discussion now. Um, start with the war paint and Danny. And I'll start with our Danny as well. Obviously a subject that's been in the news a lot. It's, it's something that caught a lot of people's attention um, around males wearing makeup and the reasonings behind it. I know you've got some thoughts around it, Dan, but... Rather than ask you something specific, what are your overarching views on on wall paint and what they're trying to achieve? You know, we, we spoke about it kind of post interview, um, kind of body image and, and and that sort of thing. It's not something that I've ever really ever had any issues with. It's not something that's been a an anxiety of mine at all. Um, so I, it is quite difficult for me in a way to kind of not so much empathise with it, but but understand where that that kind of that kind of comes from if you know what I mean it's just not something that's ever been an issue of mine and where do you stand on and it, it's not an easy question to answer but we're trying to make men feel more comfortable about being in their own skin yeah and the idea behind war paint is to make men feel comfortable but some would argue that it is at the same time masking that and yeah. hiding behind it where do you sit on that side of the fence see that was see my difficulty with it would be and again it comes from a place where I've never felt any uncomfortableness leaving the house with my appearance or anything. So it's it it you know, I would be happy to be proved wrong in terms of, you know, people might say how helpful it's been for them. And clearly 
Danny's doing well with, with what he's doing and, and, and they've made a lot of waves and stuff and I suspect it probably is helping a lot of people and as much as anything else it kind of just raises that question as Danny was saying but I think one of the issues that I had that, found, that I found a bit problematic with the whole thing was that I think generally and it's hardly like a brand new opinion but we do have a real issue with kind of identity in terms of the way that people are viewed kind of aesthetically and there's been a lot of conversations particularly around females over the last sort of 10 15 20 years particularly as we've been growing up we've kind of seen how it's changed in terms of having models that are more representative of in air quotes the average person having sort of plus size models that are starting to come into into sort of popular culture even things for blokes like Giacomo you know they have kind of what you would what you would class normal fellas that are advertised on there and I suppose my difficulty with it would be is that I suppose Danny's kind of sort of MO is around he had body dysmorphia he had problems about his own image and stuff which must have been really difficult to deal with particularly as a teenager and he wanted to do something to kind of help with that and assist with that and I don't know if there's kind of a bit of a contradiction in so much as if the problem that you're trying to trying to deal with is kind of fueled by the industry that you're then becoming a part of if you see what I mean and I don't think necessarily again this is as I say it's only my opinion and it comes from a place that's never had to deal with that type of thing so it I entirely understand why people would want to be able to pick up some you know be foundation or, or you know eyeliner or mascara whatever it might be and give them the confidence to leave the house go to work see their friends go to pub do whatever it might be but I do wonder if it's kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit that we're almost papering over the cracks and putting plasters on wounds whereas and, I, and again it's quite a lot to expect someone to try and tackle something that's basically a fundamental issue with, with kind of modern day society and the way that we project the importance of aesthetics but I do have some concern with you know ultimately uh, that, that message that Danny was talking about about men should have the choice to wear makeup which I think is is true. I think, you know, there shouldn't be any embarrassment if a man wants to wear makeup. They should be more than welcome to do so. And I certainly wouldn't have any judgment over that at all. But I wonder if maybe the message would be that nobody has to wear makeup. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And again, as I say, it's purely just an observation and, and the conversations that we had with Danny, I fully understood the, the reasonings behind the things that he, that he was saying, the things that he does. Because I suspect for some people it is really really useful for them and really helpful, but I think ultimately maybe the problems that people are having with that type of thing are caused by larger issues that people maybe won't deal with because we're just providing an alternative to to hide it almost. If you see what yeah. I mean, um, there were also some other things which I did ask Danny at the beginning of the interview around kind of the some of their marketing and stuff some of the language they use is quite sort of classically masculine in terms of in terms of being quite sort of aggressive and, and that sort of thing and there was also um a question i asked them about the models that he uses on his on the on the website um that they were sort of models that you would expect to see in the in the sense of they were all young and attractive and in good shape and you know haircut was all spot on and you know all the rest of it and i was thinking when I looked at the website, it's not a product that I would be looking to buy. But if I was, I wouldn't see myself in yeah. the website, which is, I think is a big complaint that people have about the way that products are advertised is that you buy them and you go, I don't look like that. 
So then when you when you get them, you think, well, why don't I look like... People expect when they buy something to look like... Because that's the way it's sold yeah, to them. Yeah, that's the image around it. And I think that's probably a wider issue with cosmetics in general, is that they tend yeah. to lend themselves to what society would dictate the young and beautiful. Yeah, not the so classically much. attractive. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just to bring this on to yourself then, Ant, I must admit I'm somebody who's quite self-conscious of how I look and how, how I people taking photos on me and those type of things. I've never struggled to the to the lengths that Danny has and how he explained his struggles within within the um, interview that we did. But do you think the needs to be breakdown of other barriers for things like war paint to become more sort of socially accepted? Because my initial thoughts on it would be if I was too self-conscious of how I appeared, I would be very aware of wearing makeup and maybe the environment I put myself into, like going to the match and those type of things, people taking the piss, which is everything that's wrong with society. But do you think you need to maybe be of a certain mentality to actually have the confidence to wear makeup as well? Um, yeah, you, well, you're probably right. You do need to have a bit of confidence to, to do it. Um, but I think in terms of if you put put it in that environment to go to a, a social event and, and, and the like, you know, say going the game, you know, I think if if you've got friends already, you've got to rely on those friends to to back you and support you. And if they're not going to do that, then because you're trying to cover up a few marks or um, a bit of acne as well, I think he he told that story about the the, the kid's mum getting in touch with him and saying, you know, it's changed his life. It's it's just made him a lot more happy. Yeah. And, yeah. and and you know, it it completely changes things. I I think. Personally, if if I turned up and I was trying to cover some, well, not cover something up, but yeah, cover cover something up like that, and I was getting stick for it, but then I took it off and I was still getting stick for it. I'd be like, well, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. You need to, he's kind of back me. So I think in in terms of like in in your friendship groups, I think you've got to rely on support, and and that that's that's difficult for some people, that, you know, because you are changing something that's that's gone on for a while, but you know. In, in terms of how we view makeup and, and how we view things like that, you know, it's stereotypically a, a female thing, even though, you know, you've got a lot of bands back in like 1970s and 80s who were, you know, I mean, you look at Kiss, who were mm. quite happy mm. to, to go and, and, and. Are we? Yeah, exactly. And and it's always seen as like an alternative and, and, and stuff like that. But I think when I was when I was listening to Danny talk about, you know, he particularly mentioned his ears. Um, you know, I think I, I started texting in a group saying I used I used to worry about mine, and, and you're right in in terms of it's a societal thing it's mm. because you're in school and people pick up on it, it's kind of a pack mentality type type of thing. And until you hit back, and often you hit back with more of a, a kind of a worse thing mm. uh, that needs to be said, and, and you just add to the problem. It never really gets fixed. That's going to take a monumental shift. Um, and it's going to take a lot more talk and a lot more being open with each other at an earlier age and it'll take you know for example me to pass that down to my child and, and other parents to pass that down to my other, other child, children so it's going to take a long long time for that side to get fixed um, I, I agree with Danny I think some of the, the language used and stuff like that isn't amazing but I don't think it's to the point where you go oh, we'll just throw mm. that away and, and yeah. I can I can go to the side. I I fundamentally think it, you know, if I I rocked up with makeup on today, it, it wouldn't. It doesn't change who I am. That's the fundamental thing. Yeah. You know, I think you've got to get below. You know, don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. I think you've got to get below that, and you've got to start knowing the people. Um, 
I think particularly at a young age, it'll be difficult um, for for young people to to try and do that. But there is there is a lot more openness coming through, and and I think that's a good thing. I think one interesting thing that you've just kind of made me think of there, and and we we spoke about it there at the very beginning of this episode was some of the things that we've worn to the match mm. that we've had the piss taken out of for wearing, and I think we've all certainly had conversations where we've gone. Be asked where I'm just I'm be asked wearing it in a match because someone will just take the piss out of me, and you just shouldn't have to feel like that. You should be able to wear whatever you want and and dress however you want and have your hair however you want and do whatever. I mean, I said at the beginning I'm someone who's you know I've got tattoos, I've had piercings and I've done my hair in all different mad ways, and that was because I came from a household where we were always allowed to express ourselves. And when we were kids, and I said to me mum, "Can I?" have my hair dyed because I wanted it to look like David Beckham she was like yeah alright do whatever you want even though she knew I'd get in trouble at school because the school didn't allow it she didn't want to curtail the fact that we wanted to express ourselves in, in some way and it goes back to the theme which was identity and I think it, it is important and people finding their identity can be done through their appearance and those things should be encouraged because then ultimately people will start to do it to hide things that they, they have issues with one thing that it did make me think which goes back to what you were saying about you teaching it to, to, to Evan to your son would be, I think, one thing that we should all be mindful of. And I think, I mean, personally, I mean, I, I, I will regularly make jokes to you about Burton. <laughs> but I think, within reason, I think things like that are okay. But I think we should always be mindful of when we say, oh, that looks like that, or oh, why is your hair like that, or why is that? You don't know what the story is behind it. You don't know what it is that's caused it. And I think it just... And, and, and it's not it's not a criticism in terms of everyone because everyone does it and it's easy to do and the reason that we do it and we do it as fellas mainly you don't generally see um, and this is again a generalisation I don't think you see women do it as much I think it's quite a male thing to do is to make a joke first uh, women and build each other up and they'll tell you how lovely they look even if they don't mean it because it's the right thing to yeah. do but I find, I just think if you know if, 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 if someone comes in and you're like Hell, what have you done to that? Or, and you don't know what the story is behind it. Yeah. There could be something that's that's a danger, yeah. And I think it. that's what goes on. What I like about war paint is that it just allows choice. Mm-hmm. And I think people have a problem for some reason with people having a choice. They want you to do what you do, or they want you to act how they feel you should act. Nobody has to go out and, and, and buy women's makeup or men's makeup and put it on. But they still should be able to access it if they want to, mm-hmm. and that and that's what my overwhelming thought on it is: is men would not be comfortable because someone I've, I've met, I mean I saw some criticism, which is why would you have sex attached to makeup? It should just be makeup. But men would not be comfortable. Well, it's marketing. It's, be, it's just a marketing. But isn't when it? you it's think about it, though, if you're already not comfortable wearing makeup and you've been deliberating it and you might have wanted to do it for months, and all of a sudden you can you can buy men's makeup yeah. and you feel like maybe to yourself you. And it might also be when you're more. carrying it or carrying the bag. Yeah, other people it, don't know that exactly, it's makeup, yeah. and I think that element of it is could important. You, could as you well. imagine going up to the to the counter in a John Lewis or a Debenhams where it's all female brands and you you you, you had to buy it, and then they, they would probably say, "Oh, is this for your girlfriend?" Yeah. Because it's just what society thinks and also, should happen. We've all been shopping with our partners when we've been to those places. You know, the makeup counters in, as you say, Debenhams, John Lewis, uh, other department stores are available. Although well, <laughs> probably not these days, to be honest with you. Um, but you, they, you go and get tested to make sure you get the right tone yeah, yeah, and all that. Is it the right product? Can you imagine if you were in a department store like that and there was a, a war paint one mm-hmm. and they had lads there who were 
doing the makeup well, for fellas and he, stuff. He's got one, hasn't he? I bet you that most of his sales would be online. Oh yeah, I would imagine men so. Would just be but that would, wouldn't that be, you know, as I said, I mean, the things that the, the points that I made before still stand, but I do think that would be. I, I understand that the, the essence of why that would be a positive thing for the choice for people. Because I agree, all, it's because breaking all, down that barrier, it it's is. getting it in people's... Um, and then at least it starts the conversation, yeah. which is what Danny was so it keen to do. It normalises it, yeah, which is what I think it, he's keen to do. Yeah, yeah, bring it to the forefront. Well, just just to move the conversation on a little bit, we obviously had Davin Eady on as well. Um, I think Davin's been introduced to, to Danny via the, the link with Norwich, but Davin had his own story to tell. Um Quite a sad one, really. A career that was plighted with injuries. He got into the England team under Glenn Hoddle, but didn't actually get his cap due to a nasty injury. Um, a career that seemed maybe a little bit unfulfilled when he retired, I think, in his late 20s. Darwin has now started to accept um, that he had depression at some stage in his life, and he had had suicidal thoughts at, at certain stages of his life. And He's now been encouraged to talk, and he did say one of the reasons being was the impact and the fallout to the Gary Speed um, death. Sorry, start that again. Davin's obviously since come out and, and, and started to talk and tell his story a little bit more. And he said the fallout from uh, the passing of Gary Speed had a massive impact on him. And it, it made him realise that he maybe could have gone down a similar path and he really wanted to open up and, and, and get himself some help. Just speaking to, to Darren, and we've obviously had a few footballers on the show before who've had similar stories but they're all different in their own right mm-hmm. what what do you think Ant, when you when you listen to, to Darren speak about the help that there was for him and, and still the gaps that, that are, exist and getting men to open up and come forward well he said he didn't know what he what he was going through did he it, 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 that's what it came across as and when that Gary Speed news came out and I, I remember where I was and I was in in uni at the time and I remember feeling like Pretty shocked, like just I think yeah. everyone was. Um, but he said he didn't really know what it, what it was, and he was like, well, "I'm not going to talk to anyone." And and then that news came out, and he's gone. That could be me in a couple of weeks. Mm. And you're thinking, where? I mean, we, I think we've we've not hammered the the support around footballers a lot, but you know, where are the where where is the support? You know, a guy who's retired at an early age. In an era where people are retiring at, you know, mid thirties, should be playing probably non-league till he's probably about thirty-seven. You know, where where, where is the support for them? I, I at that time, I don't think there would have been much at all because I, I don't think it was a. You know, we spoke about it about Guy Branston, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the the kind of knowledge, mm. and you know, we we asked in that in that episode, would they have come out and spoke about it? No. Why would he? We just got on with it and carried on like every other man has, and just cracked on and thought, "Oh yeah, I'll be okay in a couple of weeks, in a couple of months," and he wouldn't have been. And, he, and to to know that now, for that needy to to know that he wouldn't have been okay if he carried on, is a it's a big admittance really to yeah. to turn around and go, "I would have, I, I could have done something terrible, I could, I could not be, I might not be here." I think that's really mm-hmm. really important to to stress and. The circumstances, you know, I, I wouldn't like to say it was a direct link, but, you know, Gary Speed passes someone that's been in the game around the same time he has. Same ageism, same, <laughs> both had families, and he, he fitted the same mould, didn't he? As, yeah, as same profile, wasn't he? Yeah. Same profile, yeah. And you're thinking, wow, <laughs> like, 
it's took a wake up call yeah. from somebody else rather than himself, which I think it's is really, a little bit. It's sad, isn't it? isn't it? And as I, you say, it's the, sad ga- the Gary Speed thing. I think was particularly shocking purely because of how high profile Gary Speed is. I mean, at the time when 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 he died, he was the Wales manager. I don't think you can kind of underestimate that he was Wales national. Wales national manager right now was Ryan Giggs. Yeah. So I think you only have to look at how high profile a role that is. He was Wales national manager. He's one of the all-time highest appearance makers in the top division. He's, he's, he's loved at every single he's, time he's, he's been he's, he's, uh, in a lot of. He's probably a national icon in Wales. Before he even started before this. that change in their form, didn't he? he implemented oh, the, the, went yeah. into the Euros and, yeah. and and Chris Coleman said that didn't he he said we would not have got to the semi-finals had it not been for the groundwork that Gary Speed had put in but I think it was so shocking because it, it did come out of nowhere it probably didn't come out of nowhere for people who really knew him I think mm. there was probably you can always I think retrospectively look back but I think for, for, for Darren for him to see that and, and, and that was what was a bit of a catalyst for change for him it is sad that it's come to that and I think that's the biggest thing that we should take away from this is that whilst yes that's a in, in a way it's a good thing that you've noticed something else and been able to, to try and use it to turn your life around or turn your feelings around or whatever it might be but it shouldn't it shouldn't take somebody no. taking their own life it shouldn't take somebody killing themselves to omit that change what we should have in society and what we should have in around football and for men of that age because they are the difficult they are the, the at risk age group the, mm-hmm. you know people in their men in their sort of 40s are the, are the day you're at risk age group and what what we should have is an environment where they feel as though they can talk about it and they can tell people this is how I feel and particularly prevalent in football because we've seen with the likes of Marcus Rashford and and, and Jaden Sancho and, and other footballers who've kind of done stuff in, in, in the public eye around the Black Lives Matter movement and with Marcus Rashford around school meals and uh, uh, you know um, feeding kids and that sort of thing their voices carry they're really important they're really strong people look up to footballers people adore football and if football can be better can do better at this than the rest of society is doing and I know that's difficult I know that's a big ask but if it can be better if it can do this thing and be a bit of a shining light it can make such a difference it can can genuinely save lives 100% can save lives because People who don't like sports, people who don't like football, can sit on the sides and think that it's childish or immature or embarrassing or whatever it is to be a grown man and jump around celebrating when you when your team scores. But unless you understand it and unless you're part of it and unless you get it, you don't really know why that means so much emotionally to you. And if that thing that you adore and you love and that gives you so much joy can be the catalyst for you not taking your own life because somebody like a Darren Eady or like a Chris Uwalumo or a Danny Rose or a footballer who's got a voice stands up there and is brave enough to talk about it and is then backed by the by the industry and by the sport then that makes such an enormous difference and we have started to see it but I think there's an enormous long way to go and what we can't do is sit down and rest on our laurels and think the problem's sorted because it's far from sorted and we've seen that from the figures that have come up recently about how prevalent male suicide is in this country still and how the figures are on the rise a lot of it due to the pandemic what I wanted to ask you both on that uh, because you're exactly right Dan Um, 
we often talk about, and we've had this before, about what can football do to help footballers, what support do they have, and I think there also needs to be a conversation of what can people do to help themselves, because yep. most people want to help themselves, and as, as Anne touched on earlier, Darren literally said, I didn't know what to do, I didn't really understand how I was feeling, I didn't know how to act on those feelings, because I didn't really appreciate what it was at the time. So there clearly needs to be an education, not just within football, but within maybe schools, starting them. I don't know if you'd go primary school or you go secondary school, that's probably up for debate and subjective in itself. But there clearly needs to be an understanding and an education where people go, okay, okay, now I appreciate I'm not feeling right. That could lead to this, that could lead to that. Here's what I need to do. And then people can learn to help themselves a little bit more. Is there anything either of you have seen or done or you any thoughts that you have on how people can start to start, help it start, themselves? It starts with talking. I know it's a basic thing, but it starts with talking. It's your environment, isn't it, I think? But how, like, if you're not comfortable at talking, if you're not comfortable at showing emotion, and, and that tends to be, every time you hear it, there's been a sad loss of life, in these circumstances, it's often people turn around and go, you wouldn't have known. Change it. It, it's, it goes back to that thing that Carl said, about changing your environment. Can you change the circles? If you're in a circle where you don't feel comfortable talking about those things, then try and change the environment. Is there a different environment you can put yourself, which is so difficult right now, but... So particularly with football, I think there is a change. There's a massive change. And I think that's why you're seeing better performance from a lot of players. So we spoke with Dan Abrahams and it will come out in a a few weeks or, or months. And... He kind of alluded to having an environment where these players, first of all, can make mistakes and not get bombed out and go down the leagues and not play for the club ever again. And I think that, first of all, as a, as a sportsman, is a massive thing. Because if you can feel comfortable playing the game to begin with that you're being paid for, then you'll feel comfortable doing other things in that environment. And he spoke about having that, that kind of bubble where you've got to you've got comfortability with people talking why did you make this mistake what was going on what did you 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 know not uh you did this wrong kind of thing and i think you could probably trans you know transfer that to to society as well where you you know you see it a lot now in 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 working environments uh kind of a an aim to change i don't know whether you know there are obviously little tick box exercises that they have and i don't know whether everyone's fully taking it on board but there, there is a change and a recognition that this is something that has to happen. We need our, our employees to feel comfortable enough because you're spending the best part, best part of five days a week, <laughs> fifty-two weeks you spend, a week. You spend more year. time at work than you do anywhere else. You spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your family. Yeah, so you've got to change it. And you've got to make them feel comfortable. So I, I, I think that's the way way we go about it. We change that environment. We say, look. This might cause a, a bit of a, a you know a rocky rocky ride for a little bit, but at the end of the day, if, if my employees come into work and go, oh, see, I feel okay here talking about things, then then that's better. That's that's fundamentally better. And mm. schools have have got an environment where they are able to talk about things. You, I, I remember being in school. You were always able to go to someone and talk about it. It might have been a bit difficult to get to that point eventually, but you were always able to go and, and, and talk to a teacher and speak to people in there who could help you and share your experience. And you do it with your own family. Like, how many times you turn around to, you, you know, your, your grandparents, your, your, your mum, your dad, when you are, sometimes it is a little bit too late. That's what's got to change as well. It's got to change earlier. But you do go to them and go, how did you deal with this? 
you know, and they'll go, oh, yeah, just did this, 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 and this, and, and it just lifts the weight straight away, and you're going, oh, <laughs> what was I, what was I so I stressed think, about? I think as well, which ties into what you're saying, is life moves at such a quicker pace nowadays, so historically you might always have had your tea with your parents and your siblings and you'd sit around the table and it'd be a, a part of the week where at the time you might have been a teenager and you might have maybe not had the most engaging conversation but it still would have acted as some form it goes of back to el- elbows off the table yeah <laughs> well it could have done it you might have been squabbling but it was still a shared time but now people eat alone they eat quickly they're, they're on the phone while they're eating we, we live a life that is constantly moving at such a pace that you never really stop and just let your brain switch off and I think that's something that needs to change as well yeah I um, think that, that that's a really good piece of advice I have kind of learned recently that when I get in from work as soon as I shut that door I need like an hour just to sit yeah. on the couch and watch the telly or or play on FIFA or listen to something or I just need an hour not to do something where I don't have to really concentrate properly or think about anything and that hour is really important yeah. and I've said that to, you know, I've spoken to, to, to Soph about that where I've said if I come in if, if you've got some jobs around the house that need doing just give me an hour to sit down yeah. and, and you know I've come in from it just give me an hour and then I'll do whatever you want me to do well there's a reason when you go to the gym you tend to train a different muscle each time because you're giving the one you trained the day before the rest but your brain's one of the biggest muscles what's the gym <laughs> you know what I mean every day you work your brain and you overload it with information and you never really switch off apart from when you go to sleep and if you're like I mean, I'm guilty of this. The last thing I might do before I go to bed is I'll be on my phone. The first thing I'll do when I wake up is be on my phone. True. It needs to change. You're right. You need to stop. Um, but yeah, that, that's. I don't know if anyone's got anything else to add or. Yeah, I think one other thing that, that you, where you said there about you know talking to your might be your dad or your mom or mm. you know another family member or a friend and saying how did you deal with this? I think Darren saying like he didn't really understand what it was that he was going through or he didn't understand his feelings. Then that's quite a common thing for men. Mm. I certainly remember feelings that I had of anxiety when I was a teenager. I, I only realised that they were anxiety when I became an adult and I kind of understood them a little bit better. But I think if I had said to someone, hey, do you feel like this? Because I remember saying when I was about 18, 19 to um, the girlfriend that, that I had at the time, uh, something like, yeah, but like everyone just feels like this because it was the way that I was feeling. And she was like, no, they don't. And at that point, I was like, "All oh, right, okay, well, something's wrong here. Then I need to need to sort it because this because my assumption was that everybody felt that way, mm. and it's not it's it, it's not an admission of weakness or it's not an admission of anything other than you you are processing situations differently from other people, which is causing you some problem. And until you know that, then you can't really do anything about it because your assumption is just this is just how it is. This is what everyone's thinking, so just get on with it. And that's that's where the problems can come in. So you bang on answer in terms of ask someone just say to them is it normal to feel like this do you feel like this and even even if it is normal to feel like that and someone else goes it is you know and like sometimes i just go home and do x y and z to or you know i listen to this this and this or i do this or go for a run or whatever it might be and those things can help yeah put your mind at ease doesn't it yeah but it again comes back to talking ask the question yeah ask the question and yeah i think there was um some really interesting things within that interview, both from, from Danny from a war pain point of view and helping males feel more comfortable in their own skin and, and the choices males can make. And also with Darren, again, it's, a, it's another former footballer who's come out, um, spoken about his troubles. And I just think the more people that do that, the greater the conversation becomes and a step closer we come to... to I don't think we'll ever resolve any of these situations, but we may make them a little bit better and make the yeah. world a little bit nicer place to live in. 
obviously some of the things we've talk, touched on today are um, quite sensitive so we will be signposting when we when we release the episode but as previous to our other episodes uh, if, if you are needing any help then make sure you ask and you, you go to the website that we've referenced before Samaritans and the like before we hand over for the quickfire round uh, Danny do you want to let everybody know where they can find us on the socials yeah you can find us on Twitter uh, at marking underscore man and what's the hashtag my friend Where's the talking, lads? It's hashtag where's the talking, and lads. we are still asking, where is it? Yeah, we're asking. Come and get involved and hashtag where's the talking, lads. Um, we've also got a Patreon, which you can contribute to. It's just two ninety nine a month, and there's lots of extra content on there. We had a, a special episode to go up with uh, with Pat Nevin, an early release that came out last week. So you can go and get involved in that. It will be on our YouTube page at some point in the future. But if you want to go and catch it now, then you can do so. Cheers, lads. Thanks very much. Hi. So, Darren, if you could only listen to one album for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's tough. I like all types of music. I, I, I'd, but I'd say I'd have to go for a bit of 90s R&B. It'd have to be Usher. Okay. But um, <laughs> He doesn't agree with that, totally. No, Mate, no, I'd... no. <laughs> it's not going to don't agree. It's, it's, uh, it's just a... a it, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just a, I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> Boys to men from Danny. Boys to men. <laughs> you were expecting Boys... <laughs> Boys to men. Okay. Mate, saw him in concert, mate. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. My missus with me. Unbelievable. That was it for me. If you had to choose between one of the following two players in a one-on-one situation, who would it be? Lionel Messi or Jamie Curitan? <laughs> I'm sorry, Jamie. It'd have to be Lionel. <laughs> Lionel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you rather score the winning goal in a Champions League final or play as a frontman at Glastonbury for your favourite band? Champions League final all day long. Champions League final. Okay. Uh, what is the worst fashion decision you've ever made? Um, for me, it would be I've had a few hairstyles over the years. So I've had, I, had, I, 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 was, I partook in the old mullet in the early 90s. I had a mullet, unfortunately, and I dyed my mullet as well. So that that was pretty bad. I know what Danny's is going to be. It's what he wore when he came up to Norwich, surely. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, mate. mate. I actually like that outfit. Uh, mate, this, this is quite funny. Uh, I, I had my, my ear pierced, believe it or not, and I had it in between my first and second operation when it hasn't got back far enough. And for some reason, I got my ear pierced. It made it even worse, what I thought about my ears. So that was definitely a shocker for me. <laughs> Danny, uh, Danny, who does this as well, had um, had his eyebrow pierced. I always remember that. He used to have to tape it up when he was playing footy. Looked, he genuinely looked like Mr. Bump. <laughs> um, so if somebody's, if you've offered to do a round of teas, but someone's asked for a coffee as well at the same time, are you using the same spoon or are you changing it? I'm spitting in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you. I'm I'm using the same spoon, but I'm stirring the tea first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that. Solid advice, though. Yeah. Of I'm definitely not having a cup of tea or coffee off Darwin. That's for sure. But I'll take one <laughs> off you, Dan. You still got. You've got it. So what? to you. Oh. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> probably it's it's been covered. <laughs> no, no, no. Because you didn't. <laughs> No, because you do. Um, <laughs> so you did. You did your, your TLC. We did the TLC chat. Yeah. But then you've got to do. I'm not keeping that in.
<laughs> no, you got him to embarrass <laughs> him. Yeah, yeah. That's not embarrassing. Yeah, it I just is. don't know you what thought, it is. You thought Macy Gray sang Waterfalls. Everyone knows TLC what sang I, d- I genuinely didn't know. Yeah, so that's the thing. We're keeping all this in as well. Um, oh, um, what we're...